This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today, I am joined by Tom Costello. Tom is a retail real estate veteran. He's been in the industry for over 40 years. I am excited for him to be here. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you. Thank you for having me and happy and nervous to be here. Oh, don't be nervous. Tom, you've been in the industry for a long time. Tell us a little bit how you got in the industry and what your career path has been. Okay. My, my first real job out of school was at Macy's, Macy's New York, and I was uh, invited to join their executive training program, which at the time back then was they were receiving about 10,000 resumes for 200 executive training positions. Wow. Um, And and, and it was also stated that if you could get to be a buyer at Macy's, it was like the Harvard of, you know, the Harvard of retail. It's like getting an MBA at Harvard for retail. And Ed Finkelstein and Art Reiner were running the show back then. And it was a um, very high performance time for Macy's. They took them out of the bargain basement. They created all sorts of new concepts like the seller and retail was theater. And that was their whole premise. And they, 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 they were, you know, a retail disruptor, if you would, um, back then. Um, and it was a, it was a very interesting place to be at a very interesting time. And how long were you at Macy's? I was at Macy's for 10 years. Okay. And I will tell you one of the things that I did there that might be interesting to you, because I saw, I saw some of your background on LinkedIn and, um, you know, as a kid growing up, sports, sports, I'm competitive in, you know, everything and any, anything. So um, at the time I was doing a lot of weightlifting um, in college and after college, and I did some bodybuilding as well. And um, we had, we had a concept at Macy's Action Shop. We were going to have a California conceptual season, right? So all these things like Pacific Coast Highway and all, all, all things sun and fun. And my thing was, I, I love this little um, T-shirt that I had, little muscle shirt that had a bald guy on it that said Gold's Gym, okay? The only place you could get that stuff was out of the back of Muscle and Fitness magazine. And what I did uh, with permission from my boss and his boss was reach out to Gold's and told, told them that we were interested in doing uh, a shop and shop concept. Long story short, um, they agreed. We set up shop and shops in, in the 16 Macy's New York division stores at the time. Um, and and uh, I had Dennis Tenorino and Dennis Tenorino and, and Paul Grimkowski. Dennis was a, a Mr. Universe winner, and, and Paul Grimkowski, I think, was Mr. USA. And I had them come into two of our stores and do seminars, one in White Plains, 
and one in Stanford. And, and, you know, we had a big crowd of people come in and bought lots of merchandise. And it was, a, it was just a really fun thing. And, and gold, they used to like to say that I took them or I helped get them out of the back of the magazine into, you know, the world of, of retail. Oh, very cool. We taught them some things along the way because they were using blanks, it, it, which is just plain T-shirts from all of these different brands. So every every shirt, every sweatshirt, every pair of sweats had a different label in it. You know, one might be Hanes, one might be, you know, VTs or all of these different labels. So we, we got them to standardize everything, got them to put stuff on the shelf so that they could replenish us. And it was, uh, you know, it was a big feather in my cap too, and a lot, a lot of fun. So you went from Macy's. What happened next? Went to next stop was Brooks Brothers, which was a a um, very old line, oldest retail store in America, actually eighteen eighteen, and they were in the midst of they had been recently bought by Marks and Spencer, which was an English company who actually thought that America was still a colony. And so there was a lot of interesting stuff um, and interactions going on there. Uh, they had a, a whole different approach to the business. They, they, they had really taken a lot of creativity out of the way they ran their business. And everything was about numbers and, you know, bean counting and no creativity with, with the product. So... Um, that was that was a little bit of a different spin because Macy's was the complete antithesis of that. It was it was about everything was about the product. Everything was about believing in what you were doing and and buying and putting it out there for the customer. And that that worked for a long time. And and what were you doing at Brooks Brothers? At Brooks Brothers, I was a divisional merchandise manager. But shortly after I got there, another quick, I'll try to make this story quicker. Um, it, was, it was just about the time or just after the time that outlets were coming out of the pipe rack experience in, in, in the side of the warehouse or the side of the manufacturing facility and becoming mainstream. So I was myself and another gentleman were pulled out of our, our mainline jobs for about two months. And we did a deep dive into why Brooks Brothers always had so much merchandise left over at the end of the season, number one. And number two, what could we do? What were the alternatives to liquidate that merchandise? Because we, at the time, we were Filene's Basement's number one vendor and their most profitable vendor. So, and, and we were just feeding it to them. And so two things came out of this eight week assignment. Uh, we, I wrote a white paper, I co-authored a write, white paper that recommended an outlet strategy, which coincided with, like I said, with an emerging, emer, emerging new spin uh, for the retail industry and guys like, Chelsea Property Group were just starting to come alive. Anyway, we we opened three test stores, Kittery, Maine, another one in Maine, and Manchester, Vermont. And the rule was 
These things had to be at least 75 miles away from any full price, full line Brooks Brothers store. And and over and, and then in addition to that, we, we had a recommendation for best buying practices, a whole blueprint of what the business was to focus on for the next two years. Long story short, again, Brooks Brothers ended up having the, the, the outlet concept drove the business for years. As, as their main business had, had sort of leveled off and faltered, they, their stores were oversized. They had too many of them. They overlapped in markets. So there was, there was a whole reduction plan going on on the full price side of the business, but the outlet business was exploding. We hit it exactly at the right time. How long were you at Brooks Brothers? Uh, for a little over five years. And then what's next? Next is Hugo Boss. Okay. And, and I was I was brought into Hugo Boss as the director of retail operations. And what they wanted to do was create a franchise system. Hugo Boss wanted to be in retail, but they didn't want to self-fund it. So we were looking for other people's money, of course. So I have had no experience in it, but I sat down, uh, found a franchise lawyer. We put together a whole franchise system, um, all of the registrations, the modeling. Um, and I then took that and did a dog and pony show to our best wholesale customers and to see who would have an interest in uh, becoming a opening franchise, full-line franchised Hugo Boss stores. Ended up with about, one, one other thing. When I got there, when I got to Hugo Boss, they had one licensed store. And so that I had to convert to a franchise once I got that system up. And then I got to about 12 stores in the franchise system. And we all decided that we're not really a franchise. We're not really franchising. Okay. Um, and we, we, we converted everything over to licensing or back to a licensing system because we weren't charging a royalty fee. We weren't, we had a system, we had a trademark, but we weren't charging a fee and we weren't marking anything up other than what we did in the typical retail world so wholesale to retail world so anyway we backed that off i got up to about 30 franchise stores we had 10 i did 10 with the harry rosen group out of canada so and for the audience so if you're a if you're a business and i franchise to you as a franchisor um the the real way i'm making the money is through the royalty fees and if I license to you, I'm making money through the product I'm distributing through to you. There's three things that constitute a franchise, right? There has to be um, trademarks involved. Yeah, they, they own the shop. They own the fixtures. They own everything. I'm just not charging. I'm charging. I, I can't, in a, in a license agreement, you're not charging a royalty. Okay. There's no fees, there's no 
there's no there's nothing that could be construed as a fee being charged to the licensee. And that's the distinction. There's there's no there's no money involved. And but but the way we were running our system anyway, the way we made our money was through the wholesale that we were selling the wholesale products that we were selling the franchisee. So it was really um, uh, a fine distinction between the two, and they decided to roll it back because you know I was one guy trying to run the system, and there's registrations involved. There's you know different things by the states. Both you guys found were inefficient and decided to go to company-owned stores. Well, what 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 the impetus was that as a brand, you you have a vision for your brand and. In order to control that vision and the brand experience from start to finish, you need to have ownership. Okay. I, I became like it, at about six months after I got there, they promoted me to vice president of mm -hmm. uh, store design, construction, and, and retail. And I became like a psychiatrist. And every one of my, uh, my licensees had a different idea of how to merchandise, what they wanted to buy, what products they wanted to present. And it, it, was, it, was, it was very difficult to control. And it was also difficult to control the experience that was occurring in the store with, with, the, with each shop, even though we had training programs and things like that for all of their associates. Um, but they still kind of, you know, like to do what they like to do. Yep. Okay. And so you spent some time at Hugo Boss. Boss, where do you go next? Uh, Salvatore Ferragamo. Okay. I was, I was um, five, five, about six years at Hugo Boss. And then Ferragamo, I, I arrived in 2004. And it was, a, it was a good time because Ferragamo had, had been riding a crest for a while, but they got a little fat and happy. And they didn't change with the times when I got there. People referred to it as Farrah Grandma. That was like the big joke in the industry. And um, so our, 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 our role was to, for control purposes, focus them on become a retail-focused company as opposed to a wholesale-focused company. They had stores, but the majority of their business was wholesale. That was the driver of the business. And stores were like a, a sideshow, almost. You know, they were there. They weren't really focused on. They, they weren't kept up the right way. So we came in and a guy who I had worked for at Hugo Boss came in as the CFO there. And, and about a year later, he got promoted to uh, CEO, president and CEO, and he brought me in as the VP of real estate and construction. And about eight months after I got there, they promoted me to senior VP of operations. And I, I was running, you know, everything from the distribution center and warehousing to um, the legal, the store planning and design, um, travel, purchasing. Everything that nobody else wanted to do, all of the you know unglamorous stuff, which is you know that's that's what I like. I, I don't like to be. I'm, I'm a I'm a great second in commands kind of thing. 
I don't mind being, you know, in the background, making things happen. And then the, the, your most recent stop after that was at David Yerman? David Yerman. And, and what did you do there? Well, David Yerman had been trying to get into Paris for 10 years, I was told. And every time they found a great location um, and they were on it, it, it at the last minute, uh, one of the uh, big guys like LVMH or Caring swooped in and, and cherry-picked that location from them. And they, they were down the road many, many times. So what, what I had, what I did was I worked with um, Cushman and Wakefield was the broker we were using. Anton, Antoine. And what I had him do was to go knocking on doors, find out, we, we targeted the area that we wanted, where we wanted to be generally. And we focused in on, cert, on certain streets and locations. And then he kind of went knocking on doors to find out if we could get an off-market deal. We wanted to force an off-market deal. And we were looking at stores that were underperforming and maybe they wanted out and it took it took about a year but we ended up uh getting a location it was the a location that we wanted it was completely under the radar nobody knew this the place was even in play and um because of covid everything got we have a signed lease, but everything got delayed. So I think they're opening sometime this spring. Finally. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you for the story. I thought it was important because you had so many unique experiences to go through uh, what you've done in retail because it's uh, quite remarkable. <clears throat> I want to take us to a part of the show we call Clear the Air. Okay. We are going to take a quick break here, and now a word from one of our sponsors. What would be the impact on your business if you could consistently get a lease out the same day an LOI is signed? More time to focus on the things that matter? More money allocated to essential business needs? These are the kinds of things that are made possible with LeasePilot. LeasePilot is the only specialized contract management software application built specifically with commercial property owners in mind. Our cloud-based platform connects your drafting language and asset information to a powerful, data-driven backend to help you prepare your leases faster with less room for error. With a team of lawyers and paralegals on staff, the setup process is designed to be painless and at a price point that is a no-brainer. Find us at leasepilot.co to learn more. I've got three questions for you. Question one, when is the last time you did something for the first time? Um... I'm doing it right now. Okay. Uh, that, literally. And, it, you know, this is definitely something that's out of my comfort zone. So I'm, you're doing excellent, Tom. Thank you. You're, you're very kind. Okay. Question two. What is one skill you don't possess but wish you did? This ties back to your previous question. Okay. I would love to be a... Um, better extemporaneous speaker and storyteller. On, 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 on a hard skill side, 
I would like to be a, an Excel power user. And I'm, I'm teaching myself now that I have some more free time, I'm taking some Excel courses to beef up. I'm, of course I can use it, but I, I would love to be a power user. Yeah, Excel. I think that's, that's a big one for a lot of people. I'm with you there. Yeah. Last question. What is one thing most people agree with, but you do not? I'm not going to say there's one thing, but what I will say is my philosophy is to avoid the herd mentality, okay? And that's with anything I do, whether it's in my personal life, my family life, or my business life. I think that you have to look through the lens of whatever it is you're, you're doing, um, whether it's a brand or for your family or for yourself, and say, what is the right thing to do for me. So I, I, I don't necessarily follow the herd, but, and, and I think it engenders um, creative thinking as, as well by not, by not doing what everybody else is doing. Some sage advice. I, I, I agree with you there. You actually have told us many stories, but you have an interesting story about a Salvatore Ferragamo why don't you tell that story um, about Bell Harbor? Okay. What, not, not too long after I got to Ferragamo, um, we had a new store manager down in Bell Harbor. He was a very experienced guy that I knew from, from my Hugo Boss days. He was actually the president of a company that's escaping me in Hawaii. And he, he had come to Ferragamo as, and he was running the San Francisco store and Bell Harbor was underperforming significantly. And he, he was interested in coming to, to Florida and relocating from San Francisco. So he came in and took over and shortly thereafter, we came down to visit him, myself and my boss. And we went through the store and we started analyzing. And you walked into the store. It was about 4,000 square feet. It had a mezzanine that we didn't pay rent on. And you look at the store, all you see is women's wear. Women's shoes, women's belts, women's this, women's that. And then over here, there's a little corner. And there's a couple of men's things, right? The store was doing about $4 million a year. Men's was doing... 65% of the business. Wow. It had 15% it had of the floor space. So, so the first thing that we did was we determined we're going to reset this store. We're going to rebalance the allocation of the real estate between men's and women's. No brainer, right? And um, we, were, we were bursting at the seams. We, you know, we had... We had we couldn't keep merchandise in stock. We had no place to put it. Um, the turnover was way, way, way above the company average. We were over the, the square foot average productivity for the center now. We were doing probably 4,000 a foot when they were doing 3,000 a foot. Uh, good problem to have, but they, Val Harbor had been working for years on trying to expand the center. and. Nothing was going to be happening anytime soon. This is probably back in like 2011, 2012. 
And they had, they, they're like, we'd love to make you bigger. We'd love to do this. And over us was this bookstore that they loved. They sold books and magazines. And the guy had been in the center for so long, he was, you know, like a fixture there. And I said, well, why don't, and no, no other store had this in the center. Why don't we go up? Let us take over this, this bookstore space. We'll go up, we'll put in an elevator, we'll put in a stair, and no other tenant except the two anchors, Saks and Neiman's, had two levels in the, in the entire center. That includes Louis Vuitton, Gucci, Chanel, everybody. So they thought about it and they, they green-lighted it. So once they did that, now we had, now we had a, a big challenge. You're taking a very old building and we have a mezzanine in between the two floors, or on part of it, we have a mezzanine between the two floors. We got to figure out where all the mechanical is going to go. And it was, it was a challenge, but it was fun. And when we were done, we had a beautiful two-level store, the only one in the center besides the anchors. There's more now. Chanel actually ended up doing a two-level store as well. And now they have, they've um, accomplished their uh, expansion. So there's more room to breathe now. But we were the first. We led it. And it was, it was, a, was a good thing that we were a, a favored tenant. They liked us because we had been very um, loyal to Bell Harbor. I, I I don't know, you know. There's there was what was going on at Aventura, and people were were going in, into Aventura from Bell Harbor, and then there was the design district, which every luxury brand jumped on, um, except for me. I I had lots of fights about that center. I know ne I never believed in in it. I said they're they're I don't know seven years seven to ten years ahead of their time and um, that I think that turned out to be true and I think Ferragamo now went there. It so an interesting really interesting story. Um, I have a lot of questions. Okay. So when you first took over, it was doing four million dollars. Then it went to six. Then it went to eight million dollars with this new manager. What did the new manager do? He he just did all the basic blocking and tackling. He had, he he did, he had relationships. His personality he was like the mayor. So every customer loved him, and then everybody in the corporate office loved him. He developed relationship with all of the buyers and and merchandisers. And you know he could pick up the phone and say, "I'm I'm selling this." We had we had shearling coats. Okay. He said, "I can sell this," and they're like. <laughs> In Florida. Yeah. I can sell these. <laughs> Shipped them down. He sold for years. He sold more shearling coats than New York. Okay. And he was selling them to all the South Americans, you know, because they have a winter down there. Right. Makes sense. We so, have a lot of Brazilian customers. What I assume one of the reasons that sales moved is because one of the first things you did was the existing real estate allocation, you, you change that up to bring more menswear into the store. So that obviously had an impact. Huge impact. We, 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 had, a, we had a ended up having a, a belt fixture 
We, we originally had a belt picture that had, like, you could have four styles of belts on it. We, we put in one that was about uh, 40, 42 inches wide, maybe four feet wide, four feet wide, let's call it. We were doing over a million dollars a year on that belt fixture. Wow. It was mind-blowing. Wow. And, it, it, and it's, it's all about teamwork and collaboration and listening to your customer, but listening to your internal customer as well. Meaning, meaning the offices and the stores. Yeah. So you do this real estate alloc, you know, existing real estate allocation of merchandise. You get a new the new manager Luigi in there, and then you decide you're going to go upstairs. And yeah. you mentioned a couple of things that always scare me, which is elevators and stairwells because they cause. Because it's not just the cost of those. It costs a lot of money to go vertical. How, how big of a dollar value was this project? We built this for $7.2 million. Oh, my God. How, for an extra 4,000 feet. Yeah. And I, and I, well, we redid, we did, redid the whole ground store. We did a gut renovation of everything. And so the, yeah, you had to, right? Was so we, it was it eight thousand feet total? Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah. Wow! And you do eight thousand feet, seven point two million dollars, unbelievable. And you you mentioned this. You got the whole store. Did you shut down? Because I know that's scary to retailers to we, shut down the store. We we were fortunate enough to get a temp space. So we, we temped out and actually we, we, we really didn't lose very much business at all. I think we lost 5% when we temped out. Wow. So you temped out. Um, how long did this project take? I think it was 20, 21 or 22 weeks because of the, because of the elevator and the stair. Wow. Typical, we're, typically we were an 18 week um, construction period. So you have elevator and stairs now. You have a $7.2 million store. How much did sales increase? Well, the first year they increased a, a couple million dollars. And then, you know, the whole economy took a, a, a bit of a dive. So um, it was, it was, we were, we were initially, we were very happy. And then eventually we were disappointed because the, the South Americans stopped coming. The Russians stopped coming. Um, it, it was uh, something that was out of our control. But I'm sure I, I don't. I don't know. And then, not too long after, is when when I left. Um, what a what an amazing story, though. To you know, to if you get if you spend seven point two million and you get an incremental revenue lift of a couple million dollars, then it's worth it. That was, it made sense. Well, we did, we did a similar thing. Well, not similar, but we had a similar challenge on Rodeo Drive where we had Bill Sofield, who's a, um, a star architect, um, redesign a, a new concept store from the ground up for Ferragamo, different than anything they ever had done before, but tying back to that glamorous time kind of art deco time of the 40s and Hollywood glamour. Um, and 
he did an amazing job. The big challenge there was our store was in the bottom of what originally was a parking lot and parking deck, and they carved out the bottom piece of that parking area um, as stores, retail stores. And we had we had the majority of it. And um, that parking deck, that whole building moves, okay, because of the load and the way it was originally um, constructed and because of probably earthquake codes and things like that. So it was a big challenge. And we had a lot of a lot of chrome and a lot of mirrors in that store. That was another eight million dollar project. Wow. Okay. The the I what time period did you do the Bell Harbor expansion? Bell Harbor was around 2013, 2014. I cringe to think what the construction cost might be today to do that. Oof. I'll tell you, I'll tell you that the construction costs in Florida were much lower than any of the other major markets that we built in, like Chicago or like San Francisco. San Francisco was a killer. Um, LA um, was not so bad, but but compared to those, Bell, Har- Bell Harbor, Miami was a bargain. Unbelievable. Well, this was great. Thanks for sharing that story. I had no idea that's how Bell Harbor got a two-story store in, or how Farragamo got a two-story store in Bell Harbor. Uh, well, listen, you've given us a ton of insight today. Thank you so much for coming. I want to take us to the final part of the show we call Retail Wisdom. I've got three quick questions for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Question one. What extinct retailer do you wish would come back from the dead, Tom? Sears. All right. Sears. Uh, I, I Out of college, my first credit card was at Sears. Oh, there you go. Question two. What is the last item over $20 you bought in a store? Don't laugh. Um, it was last week, and I my my wife is very particular. She has a very sensitive nose, and there's only one one brand with one scent of laundry detergent that we are allowed to purchase in this household. So I I bought two hundred and thirty eight ounce bottles or containers of Tide Clean Breeze from Lowe's. Okay. And 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 I and I found out, you know, I've been I've been buying it there because the only place I've been able to find it, and I'm like, I, I can't find it in BJ's, I can't find it in the grocery store. And I was like, I'm going online, I want to see where I can get this. And actually, Target sells it and I can get it for about 10% less. So the next time I'm going to Target. All right. I like it. Last question. If you and I were shopping at Target. And I lost you. What aisle would I find you in? You'd find me in the electronics department. Okay. Very cool. Well, Tom, this was great. Thank you so much for coming on. You were a wealth of knowledge and great stories. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at Retail Retold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives, 
So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.